At Qualcomm, we believe in staying connected, and you can see us wherever 5G is helping transform telemedicine, supporting remote education, and powering mobile PCs. The Invention Age is here. Learn more at qualcomm.com slash invention age. Welcome to the fifth ever episode of Meanwhile in the Future. I'm Rose, and five is my favorite number, and I'm also your host. Meanwhile in the Future is a podcast about the future. In case you missed the last four episodes, here's how it works. We'll start by taking a trip into one particular version of the future to check out what's going on. Then we head back to today to talk to experts about how that future might actually go down. Got it? Great. This week, we're not going very far. We'll start in 2025. The CDC announced new plans for bacterial quarantines today. Citing widespread and deadly antibiotic-resistant bacteria, the center says that anyone with an identified bacterial infection will have to be quarantined for at least 30 days. Day four. They gave me the books I requested, but the sanitation process makes the pages smell really weird. I shouldn't have asked for A Handmaid's Tale. I had to stop reading it halfway through. Being stuck here in this room, it was just, uh, too real, I guess. Except without the sex part. That wouldn't be sanitary. And the only thing I get to care about right now is being totally sterile, waiting for this infection to die. I mean, I get it. If I leave, I'll be a walking death trap. It's just really boring in here. In a move that could open a new legal front in the debate over how antibiotic resistance is handled, a group of 7,000 quarantine patients has hired a civil rights lawyer. Group says they will challenge the legality of mandatory quarantine policies. It's day 12. They give us these recorders to use, but I'm not really sure why, or if anybody's actually going to use them. And who's going to listen to these tapes of a dead guy? No one's going to ever want to even touch the thing. I bet they'll just burn it. Like they do with everything else that makes it out of quarantine. As soon as the idea to do an episode on antibiotic resistance came up, I knew exactly who I should call. So the first sort of observation of penicillin is 1928. The first use of penicillin is 1941. It it arrives sort of for everybody to use in 1944. So we've had about 65 years of easy access to reliable antibiotics whenever we used up one because resistance developed. There was always another drug. And now, fairly suddenly, there isn't another drug anymore. That's Marin McKenna. She's a journalist and the author of the book Superbug, a look at the antibiotic-resistant pathogen called MRSA. McKenna has thought a lot about what happens when this golden era of antibiotics inevitably ends. So I'm going to let her walk us through the terrifying chain of events that comes next. So if we lost antibiotics, if they just didn't work anymore, Yeah, the first thing we lose is care for people who are seriously ill. So people who have undermined immune systems because they're very elderly or because they have had cancer and they're taking cancer chemotherapy or because they've had an organ transplant and 
in order to make an organ transplant work, you have to take immune system suppressing drugs. Those people first are gone. But that's really just sort of the first level of the pyramid. The next is that there are all kinds of things in modern medicine that rely on putting something into the body. So if you're on dialysis, you probably at some point get a port stitched into you so that they can plug you in easily. If that's going to be a source of infection and you can't get dialysis anymore as a result, you won't last very long without dialysis. So anyone who's in kidney failure, advanced diabetes, someone who's had a joint transplant. One of the ways you take care of advanced heart disease is putting stents into arteries. You can't put a foreign object like that in and not expect it to develop an infection-related biofilm unless you can give someone antibiotics. So all of that installing objects in the body is gone as well. Basically, any time we cut into any person for any reason, there is a risk of infection. And without antibiotics, that risk can't really be controlled. So no heart surgery, nor neurosurgery, maybe no open cavity abdominal surgery, maybe no cesarean sections. You know, so it might be the end of a lot of these sort of miracle cures or, or miracle treatments because we can't do them. Like we can't, you know what, we can't give you a lung transplant because the risk of you getting an infection can't be controlled anymore. So trying a lung transplant on you is essentially, you know, a death sentence if we don't have effective antibiotics. That's Raj Bardwaj. He's a doctor in Calgary in Alberta, Canada. So transplants, C-sections, heart surgeries, dialysis, all of a sudden are all way more dangerous. And the elective stuff becomes more dangerous too. So if you think about people getting facelifts or getting other types of plastic surgery or even, you know, getting piercings and tattoos, if we don't have effective antibiotics to treat skin infections, then the risk that you would take by getting a piercing or getting a tattoo, especially a piercing that we know, because we know certain types of piercings are, are, uh, have greater risk of infection. And uh, so if you say, well, you know what, I want a navel piercing, it's like, well, we might say, yeah, that's not viable anymore because we don't have antibiotics. And if you go and get a navel piercing and then you get a skin infection and it spreads, I mean, you could die. And it's not just cases in which you or your doctor intentionally poke a hole in your body for whatever reason. In an antibiotic-free world, hurting yourself in pretty much any way is really dangerous. And a great example of that is that the first person to receive penicillin experimentally back in 1941 was a British policeman. His name was Albert Alexander, and he was dying of a fulminant staph infection, leaking pus, oozing everywhere, lost his eyes to this infection. And what infected him was that he was an avid gardener, and he had gone out into his garden and scratched his face on a rosebush thorn. And from that came an infection that almost killed him until they gave him the first doses of penicillin, and he rallied overnight. But in the end, it did kill him because there was so little penicillin made at that point that before the infection was fully vanquished, they ran out of drug and he died. They actually refined, refined it out of his urine. Um, they took his urine and they extracted the un the unmetabolized drug for it, from it, and gave it back to him. Oh. And that still wasn't enough. So what does future us do? What happens? Do we give up all forms of surgery? That seems crazy. 
and it is. We probably won't go without surgery, but we'll have to figure out how to do surgery differently. If you are like me and have maybe read too much science fiction, you might be wondering why we couldn't just perform all surgeries in a big, white clean room. That actually wouldn't solve the problem, and here's why. Most surgical or post-surgical infections don't come from the outside world, right? They come from the bacteria that's within us. And I think that's one thing that people have lost sight of, is that for every human cell you have, you've got you know, a hundred or a thousand or some number of bacterial cells living in you and on you. And it's those bacterial populations that when they are disrupted or when they are transplanted from, you know, your skin to under your skin or from your groin to inside your bladder, that's when they cause problems. So even, you know, surgery in a clean room or, you know, in space or whatever is, uh, is not, is not going to help. You know, I think in Star Trek, they used to have like, you know, they had this sort of ultraviolet or something field, the surgical field that people could reach into. And I think the idea was that as soon as you reached in, it killed all the bacteria on your hand or on whatever surface the light touched. I mean, something like that would be cool and maybe doable, but sort of just the cleanliness is not enough. So in the future, maybe, doctors will redesign a lot of surgeries. Instead of opening up the body to install things, they might try to do everything laparoscopically. And they might try to reroute surgeries that might cause problems. Take prostate biopsies, for example. The current way of taking a biopsy is by punching through the rectum, which is full of bacteria. So maybe doctors have to find another way in. Here's the thing. Some of the scenarios that we tackle on this podcast are really out there. Antibiotic resistance is here. I see it daily. I literally see it every day with whether it's a skin infection or a bladder infection or, you know, some other types of things like pneumonia and stuff, which aren't quite as common. But uh, but yeah, it's it's not rare at all. And it's already changing medicine. Doctors are becoming more cautious about giving antibiotics out for things. And they're more likely to test someone's bacteria for resistance before deciding which antibiotic to give. That means routine problems like bladder infections are suddenly a lot more complicated. This is a real shock to doctors. I mean, this is stuff that was easy to treat. It was a slam dunk. You know, you give this person antibiotics, they're good. And now you give them antibiotics and they come back three days later and they have a fever and their their bladder infection has turned into a kidney infection. As antibiotics become more and more ineffective and more and more precious, doctors might have to make some really hard decisions about what to treat and what not to treat. So an example for me would be um, strep throat. Like we throw penicillin at strep throats all the time. It works and it works pretty much universally. But before we had penicillin, strep throat was, I mean, strep throat is not dangerous in itself usually. But the problem is that it causes this immune reaction, which then your immune system starts to attack your heart valves. And so then you get heart problems and valve problems. Right. And it can cause, you know, rheumatic fever, which is or scarlet fever. There's all sorts of different conditions. And and even now we don't treat strep throat to make your throat better. We treat strep throat because we don't want you to end up with heart problems in the future or kidney problems or, or whatever in the future. And uh, that might change. We might say, yeah, you know what? We're not going to treat strep throat because we want to hold off on the penicillin. And we're going to take the one in 10,000 chance that you're going to develop heart problems later on. So antibiotic resistance is already changing the way doctors work. But Bardwaj says that it might also shake medicine in a much more fundamental way. 
I remember when in, you know, when HIV first came out and I was actually, I was thinking of going to medical school and one of my friends said, don't do it because we didn't know anything about HIV at the time. And it was a scary disease. People were dying all the time of this. And, and a friend of mine said, don't do it because if you get exposed to HIV, you will die. If, you know, multiple resistant organisms or pan resistant, like resistant to everything, if those bacteria become more and more, or not if, when they become more and more common, that can be a real deciding factor. Like you might have people saying, yeah, you know what? I don't want to be a doctor or a nurse because I don't want to expose myself to that risk or my family to the risk that they're going to grow up without a mother or father. The age of resistance is coming. It was always coming. We've actually known that from the beginning. When uh, it was Fleming who invented penicillin, and then he got a Nobel Prize in 1945. And during his Nobel Prize acceptance, he actually said, I worry about penicillin resistance, and that if we start misusing antibiotics, we're going to bring that resistance a lot faster. You know, as soon as we discovered them, we knew that we were, that they are going to have a limited lifespan. It's just that now it's actually happening. So what should we do? That's a really hard question and one that we could talk about for hours. For now, I will leave you with the always useful advice of Douglas Adams. Don't panic. I don't think we need to become paranoid about it because when we do, that's when we actually start using more antibacterial stuff and antimicrobial stuff. And that's when we make the problem worse. So I think it's one of those things where you say, yeah, you know, this is a problem. It's going to be a worse problem, but chill. Don't, don't, you know, don't worry about it. And that's, that's not what people want to hear. That's not what I want to hear. The problem of antibiotic resistance is really complicated. We didn't even get into the ways in which farming contributes to the problem, or the reasons pharmaceutical companies aren't making new antibiotics anymore. For more information about all of that, head to gizmodo.com, where we'll post some links to folks who have covered this topic for years. Meanwhile in the Future is a podcast from Gizmodo. It's produced by me, Rose Eveleth, with the help of Annalie Newitz and the rest of the Gizmodo staff. Special thanks this week to Kyla Hale-Stern, Matt Novak, and Darren Orff. Our intro music is by Asura, and our outro music is by Broke for Free. If you have thoughts about this future or others that we should look at, leave a note in the comments or tell us on Twitter, where we're at Meanwhile Future. If you hate comments or Twitter, you can email us at overthinkingit@gizmodo.com. That's all for this future. Come back next for a different, less scary one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>